to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott, and I'm the Assistant Editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or $60 for print plus online. Hello, this is Dan Disney. One of the world's most illustrious poetry competitions, the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, opens on the 3rd of July and will remain open until the 9th of October. Last year I received the prize, this year with the magnificent poets Felicity Plunkett and Lachlan Brown, I'm fortunate enough to be judging the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. Of course, we look forward to receiving and reading your entries. For details about the 2024 Porter Poetry Prize, worth a total of $10,000 in prize money, visit the Australian Book Review website. This week on the ABR podcast, literary critic and editor Geordie Williamson reviews J.M. Kertzay's new short story collection, The Pole and Other Stories. Kertzay, originally from South Africa, now living in Adelaide, was the first author to have twice won the Booker Prize and in 2003 was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Geordie Williamson explains that this collection takes the author's perennial concerns and reworks them in minimalist form. At the age of 83, Kurtzay has again proved himself a true and loving creator, argues Williamson, by denying his characters endings or wholeness, the great lie of art. Here is Geordie Williamson with Last Things, J.M. Kurtzay's Antipodal Forces. The aphorist George Christoph Lichtenberg likened reviews to a kind of childhood illness to which newborn books are subject to a greater or lesser degree, like measles or mumps, which kill a few but leave the rest only mildly marked. But how should we consider reviews of books that come late in an author's career? In instances such as these, the reviewer is tempted to avoid any chance of career-ending pneumonia, applying a nurse's gentling touch to the text. Often the result is career summation, a soft pedal at indications of decline. The Pole is a collection of short fiction, or rather, one novella large enough to draw a number of narrative asteroids into its gravitational field, which refutes the assumptions of that palliative approach. At the age of 83, Kutzea has produced a book in which the waning of the writer's powers is masterfully anticipated, incorporated even, into the structure and concerns of the stories it contains. It is a collection, moreover, whose intensities are only sharpened by the proximity of death. Kurtzia's gaze, in a manner that only Tolstoy and a few other writers might realise, is unblinkingly directed here towards last things. The poll takes the author's perennial concerns, particularly those dealing with our treatment of animals, four stories relate to Elizabeth Costello, and reworks them in minimalist form. Alberto Giacometti's sculptural output during World War II was apparently so winnowed by circumstance and aesthetic design that it fitted into a matchbox. The Pole and other stories does something similar for Kutzea's long career. The title novella describes the course of an affair, though, honestly, it can barely be described as such, 
between a measured, attractive, middle-aged woman from the Catalan bourgeoisie and a Polish pianist of 70. Pair first meet when the musician, known for his austere interpretations of Chopin, performs for an audience that includes the woman, named Beatriz, the Dantesque echoes of her name are fully intended, in Barcelona. A single, stilted dinner afterwards, where Beatrice is obliged to host the visiting pianist and drop him back at his hotel, is enough to inspire in the older man, Ritold, his surname unpronounceable for the southerner, a durable passion. Ritold writes her a letter, sending a CD of his Chopin recordings. When he travels to Girona to teach, she agrees to his request for a further meeting, at which he pledges his undying love. Beatrice, nonplussed, rejects his approaches outright. After he writes subsequently to suggest that she join him on a trip to Brazil, she haughtily demurs. The man is too old. She is companionably married. The notion is both distasteful and absurd. Still, he persists. Ritold later writes to inform her that he will be visiting Spain and begs to see her. Again, she blocks and parries. But something about his gallant monomania wears her down. Beatrice eventually invites him to stay at her family holiday home in the Balearic Islands. They spend a short week together, and for three nights she allows the pole into her bed, after which her resolve strengthened in the wake of its momentary weakness. Beatrice severs ties with the pianist for good. It is hardly a tale of passion spent. Beatrice, wife of a banker and mother of two grown sons, is eminently sensible. She is hardly undone by Witold's stiff, formal wooing, and Kurtzea's decision to number the paragraphs of each distinct section of the novella gives it the air of a philosopher's tractatus, rather than, say, one of Milankundera's tales of erotic picaresque. It is only much later, following the pianist's death, that something dormant in Beatrice is woken. When word comes from Poland that he has left something for her, she travels north and personally retrieves from his apartment a sheaf of poems, written in Polish, composed for her by the pianist in the years of silence that passed between them. Once translated, the poems inspire disquiet in Beatrice. Witold's love for her has been projected beyond the grave. The final section of the poll consists of letters written by Beatrice to the dead man, still complaining at the oddity of his obsession, still refusing his late blandishments, and yet... The letter's very existence are an acknowledgement, of sorts, of the poem's receipt. Perhaps we conclude it is only at this point that their relationship has truly begun. Perhaps a kind of immortality has crept into their liaison, after all, now that it exists out of time. Dante only met his Beatrice twice, or so he claimed, and his poems to her were composed mainly in the wake of her death. If that old story of courtly love provides the metafictional scaffolding for the pole, the novella's style and manner are inimitably Kurtzea's. The light, needling irony of his humour, the eloquent disdain of Beatrice for her rigid, intractable pole, redolent of that deployed by Adriana, widowed Brazilian dancer against John in 2009 summertime, and the quixotic adherence to positions, Witold's reverence for Beatrice's grace is not dissimilar to Simon's devotion to David's special nature in the Jesus trilogy, which are unamenable to external validation. 
the novella's form only bolsters the sense of familiar terrain. Here the novella's title, The Pole, comes to have an alternative meaning. North and South, man and woman, philosophy and religion, passion and reason, animality and human continence, disembodied sublimity and the quotidian world. All the trademark antinomies of Kurtzea's fiction are activated, oppositions which generate meanings beyond a simple right or wrong, yes or no. The result is a fiction designed like a Faraday cage or a portrait by Francis Bacon, in which these antipodal forces seethe within the semantic field created by the author. Like the best of Kurtzea, what seems at first chilly and intellectually determined yields, on closer examination, a powerful charge of feeling. They burn, like Whittle's poem sitting in Beatrice's bureau drawer with a slow fire. The sense of entreaty with which Whittle meets Beatrice is not confined to the novella. It ripples out into the more nakedly philosophical proceedings of the four Elizabeth Costello tales that follow. In those, beginning with as a woman grows older, the eminent Australian author has entered her 70s. Her adult children, in a combination of solicitude and cold practicality, want her to move closer to them, either to her daughter Helen's adoptive city of Nice in the south of France, or to her son John's place in America. Elizabeth has, if possible, hardened with the years. She has grown leery of concepts such as history. I quote, She, Cleo, muse of history, has been taken prisoner by a gang of thugs who torture her and force her to say things she never meant to say. And even beauty, the undergirding impulse of her writing vocation, I quote, is beauty not just another consumable, like wine? One drinks it in, one drinks it down. It gives one a brief, pleasing, heady feeling. But what does it leave behind? The residue of wine is, excuse the word, Piss. What is the residue of beauty? What is the good of it? Does beauty make us better people? Close quote. In this dyspeptic spirit, she refuses their respective offers and instead takes a house in a village in Spain, echoing the novella. There she adopts a plethora of abandoned and locally reviled feral cats, as well as taking in an intellectually disabled man who has been exposing himself to women and children in the town. By the time John comes to visit her in Spain in a follow-up story, The Old Woman and the Cats, even that pessimism has boiled away to a form of absolutism, which he finds alien and inexplicable. He cannot stand his mother's feline brood and challenges her on the worth of saving them. Her response astonishes him. She has decided, in the manner of cats, to, I quote, turn my back on my old tribe, the tribe of the hunters, and side with the tribe of the hunted. End quote. The entreaty made to her by the cats, she continues, I quote, is prior to and more primitive to the ethical. End quote. Learning as we do in the next story that Elizabeth Costello is suffering from dementia and indeed plans to commit suicide before her condition further deteriorates, this position, almost pre conscious, feels like a return to origins, as well as a correct point to conclude. Still, on first reading, the final stories feel jagged, broken off before some narrative order might be allowed to go here. 
It is only when we return to them that this fragmentary quality reveals itself as the only viable approach. Endings are what we construct to grant a false order to human existence. They are the lie of art. Kotzer proves himself a true and loving creator by finally denying Elizabeth Costello a wholeness which she did not possess nor would wish to pretend to. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.